This is Kate from the Ignorance with Bliss podcast in Salem, Massachusetts. You are fortunate enough to be listening to California Dreaming on the Orbital Jigsaw Network. Enjoy! This episode of California Dreaming is brought to you by Blueberry. Creating a podcast isn't that simple. It's more than just recording yourself and uploading it. To get your show to be everything you want it to be, you're going to need a little more than that. You need easy and reliable hosting so your time can be spent creating your content, the most accurate download stats so you know if you're reaching the audience that you're wanting to, and a web page that makes setting up totally easy on you and won't take up so much of your valuable time. And Blueberry offers all of this and more for hosts and aspiring hosts alike. Simple media hosting, a fully integrated WordPress website with their PowerPress sites. So, if you already have a podcast, or you've always dreamed about starting one, head over to www.orbitaljigsaw.com dream to sign up, and the first month is on us. The Blueberry support team is available to walk you through the steps of migrating your show without losing any subscribers, or to help you get started in the process of launching your new show. With the first month for free, using promo code DREAM, you've got no excuses. So... Let's get started. As always, I'd like to take the time to thank everyone who has recently joined in supporting the making of California Dreaming through Patreon. Your generosity and willingness to want to help me bring you consistent content each week really keeps me going, and all of you are greatly appreciated. So thank you to our newest Patreon supporters, Sean D., Randy M., who increased his pledge, and thank you so much for everything that you've done for the show, Randy. Beth M., Allison M., Lisa B., Marianne O., and Ellen C. I would also like to thank everyone who has made a one-time donation through our PayPal as well. And if anyone who isn't interested in signing up for Patreon, and if you have a dollar or two to spare to put towards producing this show, you can do so by using our email, Pod at yahoo.com. That's K-I-L-L-A-F-O-R-N-I-A-P-O-D at yahoo.com. Thank you all again, and let's get on with episode 66. You may have noticed that this episode is indeed a vacation series episode. I haven't done that many of them, but every once in a while, we like to take a little trip outside of California to visit other places around the country and around the world. And it's usually something that we vote on on the Facebook discussion page or on Twitter as well. And as a thank you to the ladies and one gentleman who helped me keep things moving along in the Facebook group, Lisa, Valerie, Emily, Kim, Crystal, and Randy, We are going to do a vacation series episode from each of their home states or countries, as it were, with the exception of Emily, because she's in California, and that wouldn't make any sense. So, we put it to a vote, and England, Kim's home country, won by a landslide. So, England it is. And I'm just going to put this out there in the universe right now, I am not very well-versed in English, English, so I may butcher some people, places, and things. Not literally, but you get it. But I'm going to try my best to say things properly. 
but I can't make any promises. And also, before we delve into this story, I need to warn you that this episode contains very graphic details of the brutal death of a very young child. Some of the details you may find disturbing. This episode is not suited for children or anyone who may have difficulty discussing violence against young children. I will provide you with warnings as we reach the most graphic parts of this episode, but if this topic is a trigger for you, this might be one that you should skip. Listener discretion is strongly advised. I usually like to begin with some sort of side story in the beginning of an episode. It sometimes has to do with related crimes that are pretty well known, like last week before I got into the story about Jasmine Fiore and Ryan Jenkins, I talked at length about some reality TV show horror stories before getting into the main topic. Sometimes I bring up some sort of personal anecdote. I know I sometimes meander around when we talk about cases. It's just kind of my thing, and I know you know I'll eventually get to the point. Like, right now, you're probably thinking, is she ever going to get to the point? Well, yeah, I am. Because I sat here to begin to write this story, and I thought to myself, what in the world can I say to lead into a story as extraordinary as this? So I decided to poke around online to see what I could find, and wow, I found some truly disturbing stuff. This story has to do with children committing a very serious crime. And not just your run-of-the-mill crimes, but actually taking somebody's life. Murder. I never really googled the words youngest murderers ever until this week because I was certain the crime that I was going to talk about today, I was certain that this was the case with the youngest killers ever in the world. But you know what? No, they actually are not. And not only are there killers out there that are younger than the ones that we are going to talk about today, there are five known children who murdered who are actually younger. I guess I was more surprised than I should have been. I mean, we've seen many an outrageous story as true crime aficionados, right? But yeah, the kids in today's story came in sixth place when it comes to youngest murderers, which completely blows my mind. Let's talk about these young killers. The fifth youngest person to ever murder someone was James Arsene. His date of birth cannot be exactly determined, but it is believed to be in 1862. He, along with an accomplice named William Parchmill, both of whom were Cherokee Native Americans, robbed and murdered a man named William Feigl in 1872 when Arsene was only 10 years old. They spotted him shopping in a store and followed him when he left. He was headed to Fort Gibson in Oklahoma. They confronted him about two miles before he reached the fort shooting him six times and beating him about the head with a rock. They stole his boots and 25 cents, which today would be worth a little more than $5. Arsene was arrested, tried, and convicted of the murder, 
but he ended up escaping and was on the run for about 12 or 13 years. He was captured at the age of 23, and both he and his accomplice were hanged for the crime. James Arsene is said to be the youngest person sentenced to death and ultimately executed. The fourth youngest person to ever commit murder was another James. James Ostmanson of Butte, Montana, and his exact birth is unknown as well, which is strange considering this is a more contemporary case than James Arsene's. Osmanson is thought to have been born in either 1983 or 1984. So on April 12, 1994, Osmanson shot and killed a fellow student at his elementary school, 11-year-old Jeremy Bullock. He brought a pistol to school and he got off three shots. He was actually aiming for another child who had been bullying him, but he killed Jeremy by mistake. One bullet struck a baggy coat another child was wearing, but did not injure the child. And the other bullet was found in another student's backpack. And in this case, Osmanson underwent intensive treatment and therapy following the shooting, even with the support and blessings of his victim's parents. Jeremy's mother expressed that she believed that her son's killer took responsibility for what he did and showed a great deal of remorse, stating, quote, There is no doubt a 10-year-old that commits this type of act of violence needs a lot of help and support and treatment. And I do not think that you could ever lock away a child such that without support because he is not going to be able to get better on his own. I believe that he's gotten some of the treatment that he needs and understands what he did was wrong and hope he can be a productive individual. 10 years after the shooting, James Osmanson got a job, his own apartment, and was enrolled to begin going to college. After the shooting, he was placed under a guardianship. He received treatment at a live-in facility, and then he was placed with foster parents who were social workers. You see, his life was in shambles at the time that the shooting took place. His parents were divorced, and both of them were infected with AIDS. Osmanson's mom was actually a suspect in his stepfather's murder, but always denied the crime. Not only was Osmanson bullied in school, but he was bullied by the neighborhood kids as well. After the shooting, both of his parents died, and one of his older brothers, sometime in 2003, hanged himself while he was in prison. But the last I've read about him online, he was successfully rehabilitated and went on to live a productive life. The third youngest person to ever commit a murder was another 10-year-old, born in 1738 from Suffolk in the United Kingdom, a boy named William York. And this one is a bit more gruesome. So William York, in 1748, in some capacity shared a bed with a five-year-old child named Susan Matthew, though I'm uncertain as to the circumstances under which they resided. And on May 13, 1748, the two children quarreled at about 10 that morning. Over what? I don't know. So William hit her with an open hand, and this caused her to cry. She began to head outside into the yard, but he followed her, and he carried in his hand some sort of a hook with intentions of striking her with it to kill her. But he decided to put the hook down, opting to go back into the house to retrieve a knife instead. 
He came back outside and grabbed Susan by the left hand. And this is the graphic part. If you want to fast forward about a minute, now would be a good time. So he took the knife and cut her on the wrist, all the way around, down to the bone. He then threw her down onto the ground and cut her arm down to the bone up to her elbow on the same arm. Then he put his foot on her torso and proceeded to cut her right arm all the way around to the bone as well, both around the wrist and above her elbow. And to ensure that she was going to die, he also cut her left thigh down to the bone. I'm assuming in this action that he's going for the largest artery. Then he took the time to cover up his crime. He took a pail of water and washed the blood from Susan's body and buried her in a compost pile in the yard. He covered up the blood on the ground and smoothed out the compost pile so it would not look disturbed. He washed the knife and his hook and put them back into the house. He washed the blood off his clothing, he concealed Susan's clothing in another spare room, and then he came downstairs for breakfast. He was immediately questioned about the girl's disappearance, soon after which William confessed. He was arrested and brought to trial. He was found guilty and sentenced to death, but he would later be pardoned because of his age at the time that the crime was committed. The second youngest person to ever commit a murder was eight-year-old Amarjeet Sada, born in 1998 in Begusaray, Bihar, India. Armajit was eight years old in May of 2007 when he became known as India's youngest serial killer. He was charged with the murder of three children, one of the victims being his own sister, all of whom were under the age of one. Chanchan Devi had put her daughter down for a nap in the village primary school while she took care of some chores at home. When she came back to retrieve her infant, she had found that she disappeared. People in the village somehow came to confront Armajit about the missing baby, to which he soon confessed and led villagers to where he hid the body, which was found in a shallow grave. After he was arrested, he confessed to two more murders, his eight-month-old sister three months earlier and his six-month-old cousin a year earlier. All three killings were carried out in an identical manner. He had taken them out to a field and stoned them to death. He was charged with murder, and all that I can find about him now is that he is in custody. And the youngest child known to have killed someone was a boy named Diedrich Owens, who was just a little over six and a half years old when he shot and killed classmate Kayla Rowland at their school. Theo Buell Elementary. Diedrich came to school with a handgun that he took from his uncle's house. During a period in between classes, while one teacher and 22 students looked on, Diedrich shot and killed Kayla. She was struck in the arm, but the bullet passed through and through, entering into her body, damaging vital internal organs. She died shortly later at the hospital while in cardiac arrest. She remained the youngest school shooting victim in the United States until the Sandy Hook shooting on December 14, 2012. Because of his age, 
and a Supreme Court ruling that does not allow children under the age of seven to be charged with crimes, Diedrich was never charged. But his uncle? He was charged and would eventually plead no contest to involuntary manslaughter and serve two and a half years. So that is quite a shocking list of murders. And as I mentioned earlier when we started this, we are going to talk about the sixth youngest killers in the world. But of the ones that I've mentioned, they've all been young boys who have killed other young children. But sixth on the list, this murder was committed by two boys, both of whom were 10 years old at the time. As a matter of fact, they were only separated in age by 10 days, one of them having been born on August 13th and the other on August 23rd, both in 1983. Their names are John Venables and Robert Thompson, though today they are known by different unknown names. They were assigned different identities when they grew up because of the nature of the crime that these two boys were connected to was so horrific that it shook Great Britain to its core, and it continues to do so to this day. In today's special vacation series episode number 66, out of England, in the United Kingdom, the tale of James Patrick Bulger, part one. James Bulger was born on the 16th of March, 1990. He was from Kirkby, Maryside. On the afternoon of the 12th of February, a Friday, his mom, Denise, and a friend of hers had taken him shopping with them to the New Strand Shopping Center in Boodle. She was a regular at this particular shopping center because there was a local bus line that made traveling there easy from their home in Kirkby. And she enjoyed taking her toddler there because it was a quick and easy place to go to that was fun for him and got them out of the house. Now, I also heard that they had driven there with Denise in the back seat with James because they did not have a child safety seat for the vehicle. But either way, they ended up at the new strand that day. They walked around the shopping center for a bit before deciding to stop in at A.R. Tim's Butcher Shop with James in tow. It was located on the lower level floor of the shopping center. This was at approximately 3.40 p.m. that afternoon. And from the information I found, it did not seem that Denise's friend was with her in the butcher shop at the time. So I can only assume that she went into another shop while Denise browsed the fresh meats. As she looked around and interacted with the counter employee, choosing what she was going to purchase, only a few minutes time had passed while Denise was finishing her transaction. And in that small window of time, just a matter of a few seconds, James, it seemed, had wandered off. When she turned to look for him after finishing paying for her purchase, he was gone. Parents, how many of us have had this happen? We glance away for just a moment, and our little rugrats have gone out of our sight, causing us to nearly go into cardiac arrest. And then we find our child and then we are overcome with tremendous relief, quickly followed up by burning rage for our kids causing us to fly into a panic for 30 seconds. 
Yeah, been there, done that. Sadly for Denise, the panic set in and she would not find her relief. Of course, that being said, it is not uncommon for children to wander off and get separated from their parents in the stores. I've seen children wandering around, crying, looking for their parents because they are lost. I've stopped and offered to help them find their mom or their dad and let an employee know that the child is lost so that they can make an announcement over the PA system. Also, here in the United States and in Canada, Walmart implemented what is known as Code Adam, and many of you have probably seen the decal in the storefront, and other companies have implemented it as well. It is named in memory of murder victim Adam Walsh, son of America's most wanted host, John Walsh. And in case you aren't familiar with the abduction of Adam Walsh, I will quickly fill you in. He went missing from a Sears department store in the city of Hollywood, Florida in 1981. Adam's mom, grandma, and store employees searched the entire store. Announcements for him were made every 10 minutes over the PA system for about an hour and a half. It wasn't until then law enforcement was contacted. Adam's severed head was discovered 16 days later, but his body was never found. So, in his memory, Code Adam was introduced 13 years after his murder. Employees who work at places who use Code Adam are trained to do the following in the event a child is reported missing in their store. If a child is reported missing, a description of the child and what they were wearing is given to the employees, but they are not to ask for the child's name, and if the parent provides it, it is to be ignored. In addition, all exterior access to the building is immediately locked down. The employee is then supposed to go to the closest in-house phone and make the code Adam page, along with the description of the child, what the child is wearing, what their shoes look like, and any physical description that they were provided. Designated employees are instructed to monitor the store entrances at all times while other employees begin searching for the child. If the child is not found within 10 minutes, the store is to contact law enforcement. If the child is found and appears to have simply been lost and hasn't been harmed, then the child is reunited with the searching family member. If the child is found accompanied by someone other than a parent or legal guardian, reasonable efforts to delay their departure will be used without putting the child, staff, or visitors at risk. Law enforcement is to be informed of this individual along with a description of this person. A final page canceling the code atom will go over the PA when the child is found or law enforcement arrives. So, as I said, it is not uncommon for children to wander away from their parents. And the New Strand is a popular place with children milling about all over the place. So it would not have necessarily thrown up any red flags if anyone saw James walking around, especially if he wasn't crying or appeared to be otherwise distressed. But this will come into question a little bit later in our story. Denise immediately began searching for her boy, alerting the shopping center security staff that she could not find him. They first made a routine public announcement over the PA system to alert people to look for the lost two-year-old. I say routine because it is routine. 
so routine that the only thing they expected is for James to be turned over within a few minutes. All is well, and everyone can get on with their day. After a little more than a half hour of frantic searching, police were called. In the meantime, Denise and her friend, as well as security, continued to search the strand. But as time ticked by and there continued to be no sign of James, the search for him spread outside of the shopping center and it was becoming more and more intense. And it really didn't occur to anyone at the time that James would have been abducted by anyone. The biggest concern was if he was okay, where was he at? Was he trapped somewhere or fallen someplace? And not to mention the shopping center is adjacent to some very busy streets and intersections. A toddler so small could very easily be overlooked and struck by a passing vehicle if he were to wander into traffic. But the hopes were high that he simply wandered off and he would be found in no time. But he wasn't being found. After hours of searching in and around the Strand, to no avail, the decision was made by law enforcement to make the search more broad, to cover more areas. There was a canal that cut through the city, some scrapyards, some tunnels and underpasses. They were thinking that maybe he somehow made his way to any one of these locations. These places surrounding the new strand, it just so happens, to be a very industrial area, and it was pretty vast. So the little boy could be anywhere. He could be hurt. He could be stuck. He could be in a place where his cries can't be heard. Anything is possible at this point, and the hopes are still there that he would be found safe. As the search continued on, Denise was brought to the nearby Marsh Lane Police Station. While she waited, they would bring in items that were located during the searches to ask her if any of those items discovered belonged to James. One of the officers had a pair of shoes in his hand, asking her if they belonged to her son. Can you imagine being that mom, getting shown some tiny little shoes, asking if those were on the feet of her missing boy? Turns out, they weren't his shoes. But for Denise, the things that were going on in those moments were still keeping her hopes up. I mean, if they weren't finding his clothing, he must still be out there, somewhere, hopefully okay. She told them, no, 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 those were not James's shoes, and so they kept looking. Both Denise and searchers continued to keep as positive as they could throughout the day and into the evening, hoping that if James had been abducted, that he would be found alive. But at this point, a wandering two-year-old should have been turned over to authorities, and nobody was calling. Nobody was showing up with James, and James wasn't showing up anywhere either. Investigators began canvassing the surrounding areas, speaking to the locals who were in the area pretty regularly. They were asking people, showing James's picture, asking anyone if they had seen him anywhere, or if anyone had noticed anything or anyone that seemed out of place. A wandering toddler has got to stand out to people, I'm certain. And the more that time passed, as the minutes and hours were ticking by, 
the concern continued to grow for law enforcement. And before long, an entire day would pass with no word of James. No James to be found. Nothing. And searchers were becoming more and more fearful that this is not going to end well. Denise and her family stayed at the police station for the entire first night, waiting for news of James's fate. The next day, Saturday the 13th of February, police came to believe that they had come across their first solid lead in the case. And this is the infamous surveillance video footage taken the day before at the New Strand. And I do believe that these images that can be seen in this video clip are likely still seared deeply into the memory of those who were around when this story unfolded 25 years ago. Not only would I be hard-pressed to find anyone in Great Britain who has not seen this video footage, or at least some still shots taken from it, I would go so far as to say any of us around the world who are avid true crime book readers documentary watchers or podcast listeners have likely seen these images if you know this story. And it is truly one of the most haunting images you will ever come across in terms of surveillance video footage. In this video, a moment captured at exactly 3.42 p.m., two boys who appear to be friends can be seen walking through the new strand with a young child. One of those boys is holding the little child's hand. And it becomes very obvious very quickly, based on the description that Denise provided, that the boy who is being led out of the shopping center is indeed little James Bulger. Law enforcement, based on what they could see from this very grainy video footage, they estimated the ages of the two boys who were with James to be around the age of 14 or 15, but they really could not be sure because of the poor quality of the video. So this lead filled Denise with hope again. Her James is in the company of other children. This can't possibly be as bad as if he were to have been taken by a grown-up. Children are innocents. They so rarely do any harm. They're holding James's hand. They must obviously be concerned about him and his safety. They walked along in that video ever so calmly. And James appears to be calm. He does not seem distressed. And he seems to be going along quite willingly. These boys must be just doing something thoughtless not really understanding that they can't just pick up a new playmate at the shopping center and make off with him without finding the child's parents and letting them know. These kids were not only given the benefit of the doubt, they were given without any doubt. They just took James to go play. Denise has it in her mind when she looked at this video that these boys wanted a little brother. She said in an interview in a documentary, that these boys must be keeping him hidden somewhere, like in a shed, feeding him sweets and looking after him. And this, in this very stressful and heart-wrenching situation, in a way gives Denise the measure of comfort that her son is with other children, 
not with a vile killer or a pedophile. The hope is there because to Denise, there is no way a child is going to harm another child. She was convinced that her baby James was going to be coming back to her safe and unharmed. It was only a matter of finding these other children that he was with. The next step for the Merseyside Police was to reach out to the public by way of the media to ask for any help or any information. Anything anyone may have seen that even remotely seems suspicious. Denise spoke to a throng of reporters and it is painfully obvious that she did not sleep a wink for the entire night. Her eyes are swollen. Her face was flushed with red, wet with endless tears. Speaking through her pain, her voice was broken. She pleaded with the public to please, if you have her baby, bring him back. Explaining that she was at the butcher, looked away for a moment, and he was gone. But despite the pleas from Denise to the media, despite the press conference law enforcement gave, and the broadcasting of the CCTV footage, no new information came in. And police were beside themselves. This was going beyond 24 hours, and it is such a long time for a child James's age to be away from his family. He was two, but he was a few weeks away from turning three. Still, much too young to be gone for so long with other young kids. Police were scratching their heads. What is going on here? What are these two young boys doing and thinking? Is this some kind of weird joke? Did they think that this was in some way funny? And if it were me, thinking about this situation at the time, I would wonder how they are hiding from their own parents. These kids must have been expected home, right? If not, there'd be more missing children reports, most certainly. So yeah, why is no one taking notice of these boys with this toddler? Especially anyone in their immediate circle of friends and family. And then I would begin to think some really crazy things, like what happened with Steven Stainer and Timothy White. If you remember that story, their abductor, Kenneth Parnell, ended up recruiting the help of a 14-year-old to snatch up a young boy for him. I don't know if these thoughts even crossed anyone's mind, but I'm the type of person who tends to think the worst. But for Denise, keeping up the hope for her son's safe return is the only way to think. And well, as for police, they have to find these boys and James. And as the hours go by, the chances of getting him back safe tend to dwindle, along with the hope. The investigation into James's murder was headed by Detective Superintendent Albert Kirby of the Merseyside Police. Law enforcement were looking for two boys, and from what they could see in the video, they estimated that they needed to search for boys between the ages of 10 and 18, but concentrated mainly around the age of 14. And it appeared as though the neighborhood surrounding Merseyside had lots of children of this age. But sadly, many of them had reputations as troublemakers, so several names of several children around this age were suggested to investigators. But nothing really panned out. The media was reporting the story. Law enforcement had all their resources out there. And the community came together to help search for the missing toddler. It was a huge effort. 
but it would all be in vain. On Sunday, February 14th, Valentine's Day, the search for James would abruptly come to an end. Denise was still at the police station when the officers who had worked tirelessly for nearly two days had to deliver the news that their search was over. And it wasn't good. It's the worst news imaginable. Denise's boy wasn't coming home. His battered little body was found on a railway embankment by other children who were playing nearby. Brothers Terrence and James Riley, along with two other boys. But I will talk about the Riley brothers a little bit later on towards the end of the story. And I will discuss James's injuries in a bit. So now a manhunt was on, not even for men, but for two young boys who have now levied upon not just the community, not just England, not just the United Kingdom, but onto the world, this unprecedented, unheard of story. Two young boys murdering a two-year-old toddler, still a baby, and in a manner that would unnerve even the most hardened investigators. It's a story that would shatter the country and would become one of the most notorious crimes in British history. And the shockwaves it caused continue to reverberate across the country to this day. Let's back up a little bit and talk about the two boys seen on CCTV walking out of the Strand Shopping Center with little James on that Friday afternoon. John Venables and Robert Thompson. The friends had ditched school that day, which was something they seemed to do on a regular basis. They spent their time at the shopping center, as it would later be observed in video surveillance taken throughout the afternoon, that the two were casually walking around the shops, watching young children, seemingly searching for a child to abduct. They had made at least one other attempt to kidnap another, possibly two other children prior to their encounter with James. A woman shopping inside the T.J. Hughes department store saw two boys attempting to get the attention of her children, a three-year-old girl and a two-year-old boy. Within a few moments, she noticed her kids were gone. She first was able to find her daughter, but her son was nowhere to be found. She asked her daughter where her brother was, and she told her mom that he was outside with the boy. Yelling for her son, she rushed outside, and that is where she saw Venables and Thompson enticing her boy to follow them. Venables saw his mother and told him to go back with her, and they quickly ran off. While they continued their search, Venables and Thompson were seen shoplifting a variety of items from some of the shops in the center, including sweets, a troll doll, batteries, and a can of blue modeling paint. They were taking some of the stolen items and throwing them down the escalators, just for the stupid fun of watching these things tumble down some moving steps. Some of the items that they stole would later be found along the railway embankment near James's body. Eventually, for reasons known only to Venables and Thompson, they decided that the next thing they wanted to steal was a child. Whose idea was this? Nobody really knows, as the boys would eventually blame each other for coming up with the idea and carrying out the crime. It wasn't long after their first attempt to abduct that other child 
that was stopped by his mother, that witnesses saw Venables and Thompson hanging around a snack kiosk. It appeared as though they were looking for an opportune time to steal some candy when they spotted James near the entrance of the butcher shop. And while Denise was inside, distracted with making her choices and paying for her meats, Venables and Thompson managed to lure James out of the shop to go along with them. It was then Venables held James's hand and casually walked off. There were several people there shopping who saw the three boys as they made their way through the new strand. They reported seeing James run ahead of the two other boys and then hearing them call him back by saying, Come on, baby. Come on, baby. As they walked out of the new strand, Venables holding James's hand as seen on CCTV, nothing about the three of them drew any attention, as it would easily seem that the children are brothers. Though, maybe today, if I saw a child of age 10 walking out of a shopping center with a toddler and I didn't see any adults accompanying the children, I feel like I would look at it oddly, likely because of stories like this. I might keep an eye on them for a few minutes, but I can't say for certain if I would say anything to the children. But I may ask them if they were looking for their parents or if they seemed lost, especially if one of the children seemed distressed. This very issue would come to be raised in the days and weeks following James's murder. You see, dozens of people would later report having seen the three boys from the time that they were seen leaving the new strand on that surveillance footage to the time that he was murdered on that railway embankment. Dozens of people. Venables and Thompson left the new strand at 3.42 p.m. and police would be contacted by 4.15 p.m after fruitless searching by Denise and shopping center security. It wasn't long after the three boys left the shopping center that James began crying for his mom, but the boys ignored his cries and continued walking to a more secluded area adjacent to a canal. Now, dreamers, from this point forward, we are going to begin discussing some of the abuse Venables and Thompson inflicted upon James as they went along their trek to the railway, and some of the details may be very disturbing. I even went back and forth as to how much or how little details to get into. But it has struck me how unfathomable the action of these two 10-year-olds are, that it becomes an essential part of the fabric of the story to understand how deeply this case affected the people of England, the contrasting components of what occurred, that this killing was committed by two very young children, and the sheer brutality of how it was carried out is unimaginable. It goes against everything we've ever thought or believed possible. And for decades to come, the world would continue to ask why and how, as we collectively as a society still have not been able to reconcile this event in our minds. At approximately 3.50 p.m., just minutes after Venables and Thompson made off from the shopping center with James, Kathleen Richardson was on a bus headed home for the day less than a mile away from the new strand. She witnessed two older boys treating a much younger child, a baby she would describe, in a very rough manner. From the bus, she shouted, angered by what she was seeing. James was between Venables and Thompson, and each of them was holding one of James's hands. One of the boys let go of James, 
while the other kind of swung him up high over her shoulder. She clearly saw James's white shoes flying upwards. In the bus, she yelled, What the hell are those kids doing to that poor child? What kind of freaking parents have they got to let them out with a child like that? Watching those boys being so rough with James was a sight that would haunt her forever, describing it as something that would never leave her. Mark Pimblett, a delivery person for a dry cleaning business, was also in his van in the same area about the same time as Kathleen Richardson. Mr. Pimblett reported having seen three boys walking around while he was making some of his deliveries. He described seeing two older boys looking as though they were dragging a young child to go along with them, but the child was resisting, trying to dig in as he was being pulled. Not concerned with what he was witnessing, Mr. Pimblett continued to drive. He glanced back at the three boys in his rearview mirror, and this is when he witnessed one of the older boys kick James under his right arm. And he would say that it was a kick that was powerful enough to knock the boy down. It just appeared as though they were trying to get him to cooperate and keep going with them. Mr. Pimblett put his eyes back on the road and never looked back again, and continued on with his deliveries. Taxi driver David Key was working at the New Strand when he, too, witnessed Venables and Thompson with James. He witnessed one of the boys holding James by the arm and pulling him up off the ground, kind of holding him up, and then the other would do the same, taking turns lifting James and pulling him around. He, too, did not intervene, nor did he radio for help from his taxi cab. Lorna Brown reported that she, too, saw the boys playing roughly with James, describing him as being picked up by either one or both of the boys, and when he was being put down, she saw that he had sustained a bump on his forehead, describing it as a little speckled mark in the center of his forehead. I will talk about this injury in more detail in a moment. Mrs. Brown continued walking along, but then she thought better of it and turned around to head back towards the children, but by the time she did, the three of them were gone, and she was left wondering if James was okay. She later found out that he was not. So there was a point when the boys had reached the canal, and they were somewhat obscured by an embankment, that they proceeded to lift James up and drop him on his head. This would explain the injuries that people began to see on his forehead. A passerby saw James on the ground crying, but did not stop to inquire about what she saw. She didn't ask if the older boys were okay, if the toddler on the ground crying was okay. She noticed and carried on her way. Venables and Thompson called out for James and told him to come along with them. James listened and followed the two. But now at this point, James has the first of many injuries that he will sustain, and it is very obvious and noticeable on his forehead. He quickly developed a bruise from being dropped on his head, and there was also a cut that was bleeding. James was wearing an anorak jacket, and full disclosure, I did not know what an anorak jacket was. So I looked it up, and I saw that it was a weatherproof jacket popular in polar regions, and it quickly became clear why I have never seen or heard of such outerwear because I am not near any polar regions. As a matter of fact, it's October, and I'm writing at this very moment 
Outside, it's 90 degrees Fahrenheit or 32.2 degrees Celsius. So needless to say, I didn't know what an anorak jacket was. Anyway, so James had on this jacket, and in an effort to cover up the injury now visible on his forehead, Venables and Thompson pulled his hood down over his head. Regardless of their efforts to conceal the wound, others who saw the children were able to see the injury on James's forehead. It would only be partially covered up. People saw this. One person even reported seeing a tear on James's cheek, but still just carried on. So let's think about this together for a minute, dreamers. You're walking along, minding your own business, hopefully, and you are seeing an obviously very young child with a pretty substantial head injury. I can just see myself being really concerned about the type of injury to the head on such a young child, especially if the child was crying. Yet he's in the company of two older boys, not that much older, but old enough to tell you that he's their little brother and he fell and that they're taking him home, their mom is nearby, whatever it was they said. I can easily catch myself being judgmental of those who passed by and saw James crying and injured because we know how the story ends. But honestly, if Venables and Thompson were clever enough to talk their way out of any confrontation with concerned passerbys, I could see the average person taking the word of a 10-year-old and thinking nothing of it. Of course, like I said, we all know how this story ends. And with our perfect hindsight vision, someone would have thought this whole scene was just a little too weird and stepped in to take charge of these three children with no apparent adult or person in charge around. And this was 1993. 25 years ago. Would it be different now? Are people more willing to step in and get involved? I think it depends on the situation. Good Samaritans sometimes end up regretting trying to intervene. Just this week, one of my fellow hosts posted about an incident that happened to her on the train that she commutes to work on in her city. She saw a woman being berated by a man on the train, threatening her and yelling profanities. He even put his hand up to her throat twice and she was crying. She asked the attendant if there was an officer nearby, and she was told that there hadn't been any nearby in about 20 minutes. So she approached the couple, and in an attempt to not make things worse, excused herself for interrupting and asked if the woman was okay and if she needed assistance. The woman snapped back at her and said, Why the f*** would I? She answered that it seemed like she might be in trouble, but if she's okay, that she would leave her alone. And then this couple proceeded to yell at her and call her names. Now, without getting into the reasons why this couple would act like this, only they would know, this is easily one of the best examples of why people mind their own business because of reactions like this, or even worse. Even when it's something small, seemingly insignificant, like an example from my own experience, There was this one time when I saw a woman at the dog park fully engaged in a conversation with another visitor. I also saw, out of the range of her sight, her dog was pooping. So I politely said to her, your dog has gone poop over there. 
I can show you where if you like. She snapped back at me, I got it. And I looked at a couple other ladies nearby and we just kind of had a group eye roll and scooted away from that lady. After that, I decided that unless I know the person really well, which if I do, I'll just go over there and pick it up for them myself. But after that, I'm not telling anyone anymore that their dog is pooped while they're not paying attention. Anyway, back to James and the witnesses who saw him. What I can say is, in giving some of them the benefit of the doubt, there is no way that they could have known what horror was to befall James in just a little while. Nobody would think that, right? Two young children with a younger child. Nobody is going to think that these kids are about to go on to commit the most unthinkable crime in recent British history, right? I wouldn't have thought it. Would you? Would we today? Maybe. I do think we need to be cautious of letting younger children play with older children unsupervised. But as this day, the 12th of February of 1993, as Venables and Thompson meandered around Merseyside in Liverpool, they walked past stores and shops, various buildings and traversed parking lots. They even made their way down on one of Liverpool's most traveled streets. Several witnesses recalled seeing James looking as though he was having a good time, even laughing. I'm not certain that recollection is accurate or even true, but honestly, I wouldn't put it past anyone who happened by Venables and Thompson and James to have ignored a crying toddler, not giving it another thought, and then finding out the next day that the boy ended up dead on the railway and not really wanting to admit that they saw the youngest child was actually in distress. It's a way of alleviating responsibility for not seeing something suspicious, perhaps wanting to remember it that way. That the toddler appeared happy and in good company, as to not feel remorse or guilt for not realizing what they had actually witnessed. I could understand that. But I am not completely sold on the story that James was seen smiling or laughing that frequently, especially after he'd been dropped on his head. But who knows? It's possible. Two-year-olds are generally happy little beings. So it very well could have been. Another woman inside her home witnessed Thompson punch James, and then he proceeded to grab him and aggressively shake him but she too decided to ignore the boys, pulling her curtains closed so she did not have to look at what was going on just outside her window. Another elderly woman happened by the boys and noticed that James was crying. She also noted that he was injured. She went to speak to the older boys, asking them what was wrong. Venables and Thompson explained to the woman, we just found him at the bottom of the hill. I guess this woman decided that it seemed like a legitimate explanation, though I cannot figure out for the life of me why, but okay. So she advised the older boys to bring James down to the Walton Lane Police Station, which was located nearby. The three boys continued on, walking away from the elderly woman. She continued to watch them for a moment. She even said that she called out to them again, but they never looked back. Another woman who had witnessed the scene told her that she heard James laughing just a few minutes before. So they both decided that there was nothing to be overly concerned about. And it would be later on that night 
One of those women saw the report on the news that James had been reported missing. She immediately called her local police and explained what she saw. She was also regretful that she did not do more when she encountered those boys. After the encounter with these elderly women, Venables, Thompson, and James were approached by yet another woman who expressed concern for the toddler. She told them that she would take James to the police station herself and turn him over to law enforcement. And she almost did. But when she asked her neighbor to keep an eye on her daughter while she took James, her neighbor said that she couldn't because her dog did not like children. So Venables and Thompson once again went along their way with an injured toddler in tow. After this encounter, the trio went into a couple of shops. They had verbal interactions with some of the shopkeepers in both establishments, and they were indeed suspicious of Venables and Thompson. But again, their suspicions did not move them to feel compelled to intervene or take any other action. The boys again went along their way. Venables and Thompson ran into a couple of older kids who knew who they were, they inquired as to who was this toddler that they had with them. Venables answered that James was Thompson's baby brother and that they were on their way to take him back home. Venables, Thompson, and James finally arrived at the railway embankment, which is approximately 2.5 miles or 4 kilometers away from where the abduction began. They made it all that way across town without raising any more than a few eyebrows and some cursory questions. In all, approximately 38 people witnessed the three as they walked this distance together, as I said, with James injured, resistant, and crying for at least some portion of the journey. Not one call to police was made about the concerning site. The news had not yet broken that there was a missing toddler from the new strand. It hadn't hit the airwaves. Police had concentrated their searches around the shopping center and didn't expand it until some time later. And by then, Venables and Thompson had already walked away from the immediate area. And when they got to the railway, it had been reported that the two boys had second thoughts about what they were doing. And it is believed that they turned back momentarily from the embankment, but ultimately they reconsidered and headed back down, down towards where the tracks were, out of sight, of any more passers-by. Not that it seemed it would have mattered anyway, seeing as they were getting away with what they were doing. But now, the possibility of any more witnesses interrupting Venables and Thompson diminished completely when they made their way down by the railway tracks, shrouded by the privacy that the embankment offered. And there would be no trains passing by until morning. It would be sometime between 5.45 and 6.30 p.m. that afternoon, just two hours after they slipped James away from his mother while she was shopping at the New Strand, that the beating, torture, and murder of little James Bulger would take place. What's even more heartbreaking about this is where that these boys ended up, it would only be 200 yards or 182 meters away from the nearest police station. The following portion of the story includes graphic details of the violence inflicted upon James once he was brought to the railway embankment, and it may be disturbing to some listeners. Please fast forward to one hour, four minutes, and 30 seconds in order to skip the next section. 
Venables and Thompson had some blue paint. I believe it was stolen from a craft shop or something to that effect. One of them took the paint and poured it into James's left eye. Then they proceeded to kick and stomp James's little body. They pummeled him, throwing stones and bricks at his body that they found along the railway. And then the batteries they stole, they stuffed those into James's mouth. Police suspected that the batteries may have been inserted into his anus, but that would never be confirmed. And I will talk more about the possible sexual aspect of the attack in a moment. Then, with a 22-pound or 10-kilogram iron bar that they found lying nearby, they picked that up and began smashing it over James's head, causing 10 skull fractures. I also read another report that the boys dropped the iron bar onto James's head, which makes sense, as 22 pounds or 10 kilograms is a lot for a child to swing. When Venables and Thompson were finished with the beating, they had in total caused 42 injuries to James's face, head, and body. Once they were satisfied with their work, they placed James's body across the train tracks, weighing his head down with some rubble and bricks. It was their idea to try to make this appear to be a tragic accident. Venables and Thompson then left James there and went home. The next train that would pass severed James's body in half. The forensic pathologist later determined that James had already died before the train struck his body. Also, there would never be any way for the pathologist to determine which of the injuries inflicted upon James was the fatal blow, but it wasn't the train strike. There were simply too many that could have been fatal to tell. All of the items that were used in the attack on James were found scattered about the area near his body. That iron bar, the bricks, the stones, everything covered in James's blood. They also found the small jar of blue modeling paint and the batteries that the boy had stolen earlier in the day. All of the approaching trains were brought to a halt. Police cordoned off the area and shielded it with tents from reporters and curious passersby. James's body had been severed and there was a significant distance in between. The upper portion looked like a small bundle of clothing at first. The lower portion, however, was naked. The investigation revealed that James had been laying across the rail by his waist, his upper body on the inside of the tracks. The killers had weighed his head down with some rubble and bricks and the force of the train strike undid this. The lower portion of James's body was carried further down the tracks. James's clothing, the items that were removed from the lower portion of him were located near his head. His underwear was saturated with blood. Nearby was the two foot long iron bar also covered in blood stains. There were numerous bricks and stones. Three AA batteries were also located near the body. At the time, they were not sure of how these batteries were used in relation to the crime and where they might have been prior to James being struck by the train. Crime scene investigators also collected the blue paint container. James's body, severed in half, had been covered in fractures, cuts, and bruises, and he had bled out profusely. He also had a shoe imprint on his face. And as I mentioned earlier, it was never conclusively determined if James had been sexually abused in any way, though the forensic pathologist suspected that there may have been due to the nature of some of the injuries below his waist. 
The pathologist who conducted James's autopsy concluded that his foreskin had been forcibly pulled back. Later on, when Venables and Thompson were asked about these specific details of the attack, both of them were very evasive in discussing it, and they also both insisted that they did not insert the batteries into his anus. This issue would be revisited several times for many years to come throughout their childhood and adolescence, and Venables specifically would never give any indication that there had been any sexual element to their attack on James. Years later, the lead investigator on the case would describe the shock caused by the injuries that were inflicted upon James, stating, quote, You can slip into professional mode, but you can never ever forget. It was bad enough that he had been abducted and murdered, but the beating was brutal and incomprehensible. Police tried to withhold as much of the details that they possibly could from the public, but the kids who had discovered the body had already spoken to reporters and described that James in fact, had been bisected. James lay dead along the railway tracks for almost two days. The Saturday after he had gone missing, police were searching the canal that ran through Liverpool extensively because several eyewitnesses had reported seeing James in the area. The thought was that he may have fallen in and drowned. Once the CCTV footage was discovered, it left investigators in disbelief that James would have been so casually taken away by two young children. Once those images of those boys hit the media, the story became nationwide news, and the urgency in finding James intensified. And as I had mentioned earlier, when Denise saw that her son was with children, she became filled with hope, as did James's father, Ralph. When he looked at those images, he immediately felt a tremendous sense of relief that James was with other children. He even smiled at the footage and reassured his wife that all would be well. He was with two young children. James will be fine. Children certainly won't do a young toddler any harm. But James's parents sorely underestimated the capacity of young children to commit violent, depraved acts. James's mom, who had been anxiously waiting at the police station since the abduction, suddenly noticed a remarkable shift in the mood inside the building. She knew something was going on. Something caused everyone inside to become more directed in their movements. There was a certain hushed hurriedness going on. Police began getting ready to head out, mobilizing. Something urgent was afoot. And then she overheard that a body had been discovered. The horror and dread swept over her. There wasn't really anything that she could do but wait to get word, confirmation, what all this urgency and immediacy was all about. She felt hysterical and trapped, filled with despair. I can't imagine what those minutes ticking by felt like as she waited to see if what she was hearing was true, that a body was found, and when the news finally came, confirming her worst nightmares, that it was her little James that was discovered on those railway tracks. Mourners from all over Merseyside converged on the railway tracks to create a memorial for James. Robert Thompson himself showed up on the scene and laid down a single rose for the murdered child. The child he helped murder. But nobody knows that just yet. He saw that reporters and news crews were all over the place getting footage of the public mourning and the growing memorial. 
Later on, Thompson would use this event as part of his alibi, telling investigators that if he were the one to kill James, why would he show up with a flower for the boy? Um, nice try, kid, but we all know that's somewhat of a predictable move for killers, right, dreamers? I mean, we've heard of killers showing up at vigils and whatnot, sometimes even helping in the search. They attend these things that were held for their very own victims. Scott Peterson comes to mind, that is, if you believe he's guilty, then he would be an example of someone who did just that. Remember? He showed up at Lacey Peterson's New Year's Eve vigil, on the phone with his girlfriend, pretending to be ringing in the New Year in France, with his friends Pascal and Jean-Claude, or whatever other stupid stuff he made up. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. It happens so often that police even come to these things to assess the crowd, to look at the faces, to see if they notice anything suspicious. So, nobody's going to think Thompson is showing up at the memorial as meaning he was a mourner and not a killer. That's an old trick. But here's the thing. What 10-year-old does this sort of stuff? Not only has he abducted a toddler, abused him, tortured him, murdered him, and left him for dead on the tracks, but now he's being all coy, setting up his alibi. I mean, really? He's 10 years old. It just blows my mind. So Venables, in the meantime, he stayed put at home. But he was expressing a great deal of interest in the case as he sat there with his mom glued to the news. He even told his mom that if they were to catch whoever did this, that he would, quote, if I'd seen them lads, I'd kick their heads in, unquote. So he's busy at home working on his alibi with his mom. Then on Sunday, his mother told him that the news broke that the boy had been found dead. Venables displayed a tinge of sadness and sympathy, telling her, quote, his poor mom. Venable's dad, however, was taking notice of a few things. First, some blue paint on his jacket. His dad questioned him about the paint, and he explained that his friend Robert, as a joke, threw the paint at him, staining his clothing. The media did report that blue paint was found at the scene and on the body of the victim. And even though their son did indeed skip school that Friday the 12th of February, the day of the abduction, even though their son owned and wore a mustard-colored jacket, as seen in the CCTV video of the kidnapping, the Venables, if they had suspected their son to be one of the killers, they did not act on their suspicions. Either their desire to protect their son outweighed notifying police of their suspicions, or they absolutely did not, could not, would not believe that their boy could do such a thing. The focus of law enforcement, the community, and not only the entire country, but the world began to take notice, and media was descending upon Liverpool as the news spread that there was a nationwide search for two young boys who were last seen with James in those grainy images. The media attempted to help the police in order to enhance those images to try to improve the details of the boys so that they would be more readily identified, as the police did not have the same advanced technology at the time that the media did. And even as the media and investigation struggled to make out as many details as they could about the boys in the footage, they were still in the mindset that these were teenagers they were looking at. It never even crossed their minds that these kids could have possibly been any younger. 
investigators were still looking for kids between the ages of 14 and 18. They focused along the route that the boys took when they walked the distance from the Strand to the railway. It was a very busy area, and they assumed that there must have been people who saw the three of them as they went along. And we talked about that. People did see them, but no one was alarmed enough to stop them, to take charge of the toddler, or to call police. But in interviewing people along the route, witnesses continued to remain of little help when trying to identify who these boys were. They had some evidence to work with, and they knew that James's killer were likely the children that they had last been seen with, so the next order of business was to check the attendance records of all the nearby schools to see which children were absent that Friday. When a list of absent students began to be compiled, several children began to be identified as potential suspects in the murder. Even interviewed were the boys who had actually been the ones to discover James's remains, but it was soon determined that they had nothing to do with this killing. Even some parents were contacting police, suspecting that it may be their own child that may have been involved. Before long, as word was getting around town about these two killer children, there was one shop owner who was potentially located along the route that the boys may have taken while making their way from the new strand to the railway embankment. He had cameras installed on the exterior of the building where his place was located, so he decided to review his footage to see if they just so happened to capture any images of the trio walking past. And lo and behold, his cameras did indeed film them going by, James's hand being held by both Venables and Thompson, one on each side. The shop owner contacted law enforcement right away, and this video proved to be important in providing a very important clue for investigators, a detail that had been difficult to determine up to this point. You see, the boys were walking along a wall, and this wall was not very high. And based on the height of the wall, it became apparent that these boys were indeed younger than they had been thinking all along due to their height, which was much more clear in this particular video as opposed to the one taken from the new strand. Investigators remained skeptical that these killers could possibly be any younger than the age that they had suspected. They were searching for approximately 14-year-old boys. They weren't processing the thought that anyone younger could have done something so violent, so depraved as this. It's just not possible. The pressure was being felt from all directions for police to get this case solved, to get the boys who were last seen with James into custody as soon as possible. False accusations were being made, one father even insisting that his son was one of the boys in the video so much so that he brought him down to the police station for questioning, kicking and screaming that it wasn't him. His dad knew his son had ditched school. He saw him while he was on the bus walking along the street near the new strand. He was certain his boy was involved. And when word got out that this boy was a suspect, the media descended upon the boy's house and the police station. So much so... After he was being questioned, his family was driven out of town because of threats by vigilante types angered by the brutal murder of James. Turns out, Dad was wrong. This boy had ditched school, but it was the day before the abduction, and the boy was sent home. The police could not have another scene like this happen anymore because the community was out for blood themselves. They needed to find these boys quickly, or else things were going to get worse. 
everyone was demanding answers and arrests. The days dragged on and police were still frantically searching for their suspects. And it would not be until finally an anonymous call came in that broke the case wide open. This caller also said that they had seen some stains of blue paint on the jacket that had belonged to John Venables. This information was enough to implicate the two boys in James's murder, and officers were sent out to bring them in for questioning. But police continued to be plagued with incredulity. These two were only 10 years old. How could this possibly even be a thing? Police were sent to both children's homes, and they made a couple of very chilling discoveries. At Thompson's house, blood was spotted on a pair of shoes, and at Venables, blue paint stains on his jacket. They were both placed under arrest and brought down to the police station for further questioning. But despite this evidence, police still did not consider the two of them as the primary suspects. They were looking for children with a history of troubling behaviors and violence. Neither Venables nor Thompson had been in any sort of serious trouble previously. In addition, investigators were still convinced that the boys they saw in the CCTV footage from the news strand were older than Venables and Thompson, that they still needed to look for some older boys closer to the age of 14, not 10. But it wouldn't be long before investigators finally came to the unimaginable realization that it was indeed these two 10-year-olds, John Venables and Robert Thompson, who were responsible for the murder of James Bolger. The two boys were interviewed separately, each of them pointing the finger at the other, blaming the other for what had been done to James. And the interviews with the boys lasted for several days. Finally, Venables broke down and confessed to killing James, and at one point telling police, I did kill him. What about his mom? Will you tell her I'm sorry? Thompson was not taking responsibility for the crime at all, having denied any role in James's murder. But short of admitting to any of the beating or pummeling or other abuse inflicted upon James, Thompson did provide other details, such as an exact account of what James was wearing that day, and it was apparent that he knew more than enough to implicate himself as a participant in the killing. Another chilling detail regarding Thompson's interview is that the investigators noted that his affect was very flat. The fact that he was sitting there being questioned about the brutal murder of two-year-old James, Thompson was unfazed by the interrogation, and anyone close to the case was quite unnerved by the whole experience. Thompson would eventually earn the moniker, quote, the boy who did not cry when he was referenced by the media. It was not easy for investigators to wrap their heads around the fact that the suspects they were interrogating were so young. The shock of James's brutal murder was only compounded by the fact that those who committed the atrocious act were but children themselves. With the confession of Venables, despite Thompson's denials, investigators had to face the fact that they were dealing with a situation unlike anything they had ever seen before. Ten-year-old murderers. And if there were any inkling of a doubt, all of that would be washed away by the forensic evidence that ultimately linked both boys to the scene of the crime. The stolen blue paint that was poured in James's eye was forensically tested against the paint stains found on both Venable's and Thompson's clothing, and it matched. Both suspects had blood stains on their shoes, and the DNA 
testing confirmed that the blood did belong to James Bolter. And there was a bruise on James's right cheek, the pattern of which was an exact match to the patterns found on the upper part of the shoes worn by Thompson, indicating that it was Thompson's shoe that left that mark on James when he either kicked or stomped him on the face. And lastly, there was a paint mark inside the toe cap of one of Venable's shoes, which told analysts that the only way the paint could have been embedded in the way in which it was was if a significant amount of force was used when kicking James on or around the head or the face after they had poured the paint on him. On the 20th of February, 1993, James Venables and Robert Thompson were both charged with the murder of James Bolger. They made their first appearance in the South Sefton Youth Court on the 22nd of February, and they were remanded to custody while they waited to go on trial. Because Venables and Thompson were minors, their identities were withheld from the media, but it is my understanding that enough was known about the case amongst the general public who knew of the boys, that they ditched school, and that they were named suspects by an anonymous tipster, that there were people who knew that the boys being charged with James's murder were Venables and Thompson. But for the media and the duration of the upcoming trial, Thompson would be referred to as Child A, and Venables would be Child B. So, who were these two boys that committed this crime? Robert Thompson was one of seven children from a family that was considered to be highly dysfunctional, with issues ranging from domestic violence, child abuse, alcoholism, chronic unemployment, and a father who was out of the picture. He met John Venables at school. They were classmates, and they often played hooky together. They would hang around Liverpool's inner-city areas, apparently unimpeded by the fact that they were such young children wandering around during regular school hours. But this was their habit, and either nobody noticed, nobody cared, or both. Both had been held back in school already, being one year behind all of their peers. And as far as anyone who knew Robert Thompson, it would be hard-pressed to find a single person that had anything positive to say about the boy. One of his neighbors stating, quote, On this street, he was Master Jekyll, and around the corner, Master Hyde. Simple as that. Police furthered this description of Thompson, stating, quote, He could easily portray himself as a nice boy, and he had a good-looking smile about him. The evil side of it would be when the questions were difficult. He just had this glare in his eye, which was very hard to explain. A chilling glare. And anyone who knew Thompson would later say that he could have easily been the ringleader when it came to the killing of little James Bolger. John Venables' home life and upbringing was markedly different than that of his co-defendant. He was one of only three children in the family with the mother and father who were not together at the time of the killing, but by all accounts, were very loving parents who were deeply invested in the lives of their children. Venables was described by those who knew him as having a fragile personality, as well as a type that would be a follower. If someone was engaging in troubling behavior, such as, oh, I don't know, ditching school or murdering children, it would surprise no one that he would follow along akin to a lost puppy. And it was a general belief that once he became friends with Thompson, he began following along with his bad behaviors, such as the truancy from school and shoplifting. 
And these were the ideas about the two that became very apparent in the media as the revulsion felt by the community grew increasingly worse, particularly towards Thompson and his stoic, chilly facade. This was the way the media continued to report on his behavior as the trial got underway. While in contrast, Venables was once more emotional, often breaking down into hysterics. So, from these details seeping into the media regarding Child A and Child B, as well as those who were privy to their identities, the public came to believe that Robert Thompson was the one who instigated the entire abduction, torture, and murder of James Bolger. I am going to bring this first part of the tale of James Patrick Bolger to a close. In the second part, we will discuss the police interviews with John Venables and Robert Thompson, the trial, the outcome, and the aftermath of all of those involved in this tragic story. I will have part two of this series out as soon as possible, hopefully within a couple of days of the release of this. In the meantime, please join the discussion on the Facebook page where we will talk about this case as well as any others that we have covered. Other podcast recommendations, all things true crime, pet, or whatever topics you could think of. You can also follow us on Twitter at CaliforniaPod and on Instagram at CaliforniaDreamingPod. California Dreaming is proudly brought to you by the Orbital Jigsaw Network. We are a podcast production company based in Los Angeles, California, with the mission to create some of the best podcasts to listen to. To consistently approve upon our own current roster of shows, to develop new content that appeals to people all over the world, and to provide a thriving community for listeners and podcasters alike. I, for one, am very proud to be a part of a group of shows and hosts, including The Concession Stand, Busted Wide Open, Super Nerds UK, 41 Owned, Historium, Vox Arcana, and The Podians. So please visit us at www.orbitaljigsaw.com. You can find links to all of our shows, our episodes, our merchandise store, our blog. And if you just want to email us to let us know what you think, go to www.orbitaljigsaw.com. Please stay tuned for part two of the tale of James Patrick Boulder. And also keep listening to the end of this episode and you will hear a couple of promos from some shows that I think you might enjoy. Thank you again, dreamers, for listening. And until next time, sweet dreams. Hey, it's Barry. How are you? Let me ask you this. Do you like to hear stories of murder, deceit, and unbelievable true crime? If you do, then you want Extraordinary Stories Podcast. This girl here will be dead by 6pm. I will blow her head off. You cannot terrorise me anymore. Do you want to hear stories of incredible human survival? Stories of some of the most inspiring people who have ever lived. I think she did what any of us would do in that moment. She played dead. She lay there and she pretended to have died. That was what saved her. If you want stories of sex, death, murder, 
survival and real human stories told with humour but also respect, then you want Extraordinary Stories Podcast. Imagine turning up to your own funeral in a wig. <laughs> Listen to Extraordinary Stories Podcast told by a Scottish man in a thick Scottish accent. Get it on iTunes, Spotify, anywhere that you listen to podcasts. Okay, goodbye. Let's get it on. Let's do it. Let's get it over. Go check out the Murderific Podcast. That's Murderific. Available today at the website Murderific.com. Also on Podbean. The Murderific Podcast is just a girl from the scary state of Maine with a serious love of true crime. This podcast is about serial killers, mass murderers, familicides, and more. Stream today at Murderific.com. M-U-R-D-E-R-I-F-I-C. Murderific.com. You can also follow the show on Instagram at Murderific Podcast. The Murderific Podcast at Murderific.com. Also available on Podbean. Executing podcasts one crime at a time. Go check it out now.